Welcome to Season 3, Episode 15 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Dawn Raffle. Dawn is a writer and editor. Her most recent book is Boundless as the Sky and is now out from Sagging Meniscus Press. Welcome to the show, Dawn. Thank you. How's winter over there in New Jersey? Um, it's raining right now a lot. Um, <laughs> since, um, since for my pub date, it seemed like break a leg was too much, so instead I broke a toe and on my pub date. So I've been kind of <laughs> walking around in a little um, foot cast in the rain. But other than that, it's okay. <laughs> that is no good. <laughs> you were telling me you are living in Hoboken, New Jersey. And the reason I know that no, that name is, apart from being there, that's where Frank Sinatra's from, I think, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think he cared much for the place, but it is where he's from. <laughs> um, before we started recording, you were telling me about uh, working as an editor in New York for many years. Do you want to tell us about uh, how you got into the world of editing and some of the jobs you were doing? Yeah, I well, I was graduating from college. I desperately did not want to go home to Milwaukee, with apologies to anybody still in Milwaukee, but I'm, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I really wanted to go to New York, and I had no idea how you're supposed to go about doing this, and so I just really started calling magazines in alphabetical order from a list and asking if they had any job openings. This is 100% not how you're supposed to go about this, but Somehow or other, I got a job, and I came to New York, and so I just I started working as a magazine editor, and sometimes I also was lucky enough to be the fiction editor at these these big American women's magazines. Used to run short stories in every issue. Um, it doesn't happen anymore, but it was a really a fun time to be an editor. And then you were lucky enough to move into the world of writing as well. Do you want to tell us how you got into to writing? Uh, I always wanted to be a writer, and I had always been writing things. And so that's what I was focused on in college. But somehow I talked myself out of it. I chickened out, and I thought, well, I'll just be an editor, and maybe someday I'll be a writer. And so I didn't really start um, until I was almost 30 after many years of being an editor and those years of being an editor kind of demystified writers for me I you know I had sort of grown up thinking that to be a writer you had to have some kind of magical talent and I realized no you really don't it's it's almost entirely effort and you've got a few collections out and another novel out don't you uh, yes yeah do you want to tell us about your previous work to this one? Sure. Um, so before this, um, I jumped around genres a bit, but I did two story collections. I did a novel, which probably now would be called a novel in flesh. That term didn't exist at the time. I did a memoir, and then I did my my last book was a work of historical narrative nonfiction which has more than 600 archival endnotes and just about killed me. And so then I've gone back to fiction here. This is this is short stories again. So this is my third collection. Okay. 
We'll talk about that in a minute. Before we do, I want to talk to you about your work as a developmental editor, because I find that whole process really interesting. So at the moment, you're helping young well, authors, not young necessarily, uh, with their work. Do you want to tell us about that work? Yeah. So starting in 2015, I stopped working as a staff editor and became a developmental editor. And I work with writers on uh, memoir, literary fiction, and narrative nonfiction. So I'll sit with the whole manuscript and go through and make recommendations in a way that in the U.S. anyway, in publishing, many publishing houses, the editors just don't have the time to do that kind of really fine-tuned work. And they also don't have the time to do heavy lifting if the manuscript isn't close. Okay. Are you allowed to tell us some of the authors you write with, or would that be like breaching privacy? <laughs> I think I probably shouldn't do that right now. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, but they're wonderful writers, and I feel like a book comes to me in the mail almost every month from one of my clients. They've won some awards. They've had great things happen for them. But I think um, probably unless they had given me permission to talk about it, sometimes you know they thank me in the acknowledgments, but I think I better not right now. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> what advice can you give to writers who are, I guess, polishing a novel or trying to get a collection together? You know, it's first of all, it's a long process. And I think it's it's a long game altogether when you're working as a writer. So it's partly, um, it's kind of taking care of yourself in a way so that you can continue to work and continue to write. Um, and I think it's all, there's also, there's this balance to be found, which isn't always an easy one, between being open to editorial suggestions and editing and also being aware of your own vision so that you're not trying to just shape the work into a mold, which might not work for you. Okay, interesting. Now, your work, you've done seminars in a lot of different places. Um, I was looking on your website and you've been to places like uh, Georgia, not the state, the country, um, mm -hmm. Kenya running seminars. Do you want to tell us about some of the highlights of doing those kind of things? Yeah, it's been great. This program was called Summer Literary Seminars, and it is now International Literary Seminars. It's a um, slightly different leadership. Some of the same people are involved. Um, and it's been really wonderful. The whole idea was to take writers out of places that are familiar and it's not a luxury like it's not writing on the Riviera or luxurious at all you go to places that are maybe not the easiest immediately to navigate you're taken away from things that are familiar to you and it just does something to your writing and sometimes I can't even articulate what it is the workshop leaders that I've worked with are terrific but also it's this being in this different setting and also being exposed to the literature of another culture but also just being forced to find your way in an unfamiliar place at where things don't necessarily work the way you think they're going to is really helpful as a writer well can you tell us a bit about some of those places you've been to like how was going to tbilisi in georgia um, going to Tbilisi in Georgia is wonderful. I think going anywhere near Russia right now would be just impossible. We were, we also taught in St. Petersburg, Russia, which is 
maybe the most beautiful place I've ever seen on earth. And I'm so grateful I was able to go when I did because I honestly, I don't know whether I'd ever be able to go again in my lifetime. But it, there are places that are just, um, there's so much history. You know, as a as somebody, as an American, you're not used to growing up with all those layers and layers of history that you can almost feel seeping through the pores of the place. Um, and you're exposed to um, different ways of writing that aren't necessarily the MFA way of, of writing that, you know, that we all agree on here. Um, and it just, you know, it, it's travel and it's literary travel. Sounds very interesting. While you were in those places, did you find some new authors to, to read? Um, yes, I have. And in fact, there were some young Kenyan writers that I, I just came back from Kenya who, um, I'm really interested in reading, um, more of their work and yes, you do. Every time you go there, you do find new authors to read, sometimes in translation, in this case, in English. Very interesting. Okay. Let's move on to your new book, Boundless as the Sky. It's out now through Sagging Meniscus. The first half of the book is a series of vignettes or short stories, and they kind of relate to Calvino's Invisible Cities. And the second half is, it's almost a novella in short stories, I suppose, and it's based around the 1933 World Fair in Chicago. And... It highlights a flyover by an armada of seaplanes from Mussolini's Italy. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your brilliant book and how you came to write it? Oh, well, thank you. So the, there's two halves of this book, as you mentioned, and they're kind of a diptych in conversation with one another. The first half is a cycle of stories, and they're inspired by invisible cities. And the second half, and the first half is real and imagined cities, and they kind of float in and out of time. And the second half is very sharply um, one very real city on a particular day from sunrise to sunset. And it's this arrival of the roaring armada of goodwill in the form of 24 seaplanes sent over by Benito Mussolini in 1933. And I just, I was so interested in both of those things. And I initially honestly thought they were two projects. And then I, at a certain point during the writing, I realized that they were connected and they were really two halves of the same thing. Yeah. Well, when I read the second half of this book, I kind of understood that because I think this idea of Chicago in 1933 with this, uh, crazy world fair that just seemed to have like Nazis and, you know, Mussolini's Italians and all of these other things happening. It did seem like one of Calvino's kind of imagined cities because it's just so fabulous. It's it's unreal to me that this fair is. I wrote it as fiction, but I even have endnotes. This really happened, and and then I had those two echoing Italos. The fascist pilot was Italo Balbo. Mm. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that 1933 World Fair because I find that whole idea of that happening in 1933, especially in the lead up to the Second World War, it's, it's just an unbelievable kind of event. Can you tell us about your research into it? Yeah, I stumbled onto this because both of my parents grew up in Chicago. And after my father died, I was cleaning out some papers and he had written a few things about having gone to that, oh, the World's Fair as a child. And he had never mentioned it to me. And I thought, what? 
World's Fair is he talking about? And so I started Googling and I saw there was this World's Fair in Chicago in 1933. It's not the Chicago World's Fair that's famous. The Devil in the White City is 1893. That was a different thing. This was the bottom of the Depression. So 1933 is this horrible year. It's the bottom of the Depression. It's the year Hitler came to power. It was also a dust bowl year. It's a, it's a terrible year. And Chicago throws this World's Fair called the Century of Progress. And it was partly a reference to the 100th anniversary of the incorporation of the city. But it was also a reference to the belief that in the 20th century, technology was going to solve all our problems. And to me, in hindsight, when you look back on the fact that we were on the cusp of World War II, this this whole optimism about everything technology would do for us is is chilling. Um, and so I just kind of got um, drawn into researching this fair, not knowing what to do about it. It led me first to the nonfiction book because one of the things I saw, one of the main attractions on the Midway, not even in this Hall of Science, was that there was a sideshow that was infant incubators. And I thought, that's really crazy. Like, so one of the shows was you could pay a quarter to look at premature infants in incubators. And this apparently was going on all over the U.S. as the only available care for preemies was a sideshow. So that led me to spend four years writing a nonfiction book about the beginnings of American neonatology at World's Fairs. And then I thought, maybe I have written this out of my system. But of course I hadn't. I had to go back to that Chicago World's Fair. And I, I had the idea that I was interested in zeroing in on one day. And so then it became the day that this that these seaplanes landed. Can you tell us about some of the other events that occurred during that World's Fair? Because there was quite a few other things that happened, weren't there? There were other things that... that um, Hitler also flew a Zeppelin, and people had much more mixed feelings about that. And there was just every demonstration. World's Fairs were the places where the public was introduced to new technology, so they could go to the World's Fair during the Depression and see this wonderful invention, which was the dishwasher. They could see free. They could see prefabricated homes that were supposedly going to be the way of the future. They could see artwork from around the world, and they could see the Great Hall of Religions. Um, and at the time, too, at the same time, there was a um, there was a big uh, pageant that was called the Romance of a People, which was it was the history of the Jews, and it was intended quietly as a fundraiser because they were desperately trying to raise money to get Jewish people out of Germany. So, and during that time, I spent uh, a while reading all the issues of the Chicago Tribune for that, that month. And you would see that like the news about Hitler would be in a side column on the front page. So Hitler has just seized the assets of enemies of state. But then the big banner headline would often be about aviation, which was so exciting to people at the time. Uh, aviators were like rock stars, and it, it's really no different from now. People want to read about something that's exciting and uplifting. Mm. Yes, it really 
There's quite a few aspects of this book that reminded me of uh, Thomas Pinchon's Against the Day, especially with the World Fair in Chicago, which was in 1893 in his case, but he also brought in the airships as well in that book, which makes it pretty exciting for me to read your book. Uh, with Italo Balbo, who is, I guess, the leader of this armada, can you tell us a bit about him and what the point of sending this armada was? Yeah, so he was a really interesting character. He um, got involved with Mussolini very early on when he was a young man. He was told that he was going to now be in charge of the Air Force. He didn't know how to fly when this started. He had to learn how to fly. And they started um, with these missions of sending these seaplanes in formation. And it was sort of a, a grand display of fascist technological power. And so this was, he had planned this for years. And this overseas flight was an, an incredible um, feat of technology at the time. Flying from Rome to Chicago um, had to be done in six stops over the course of two weeks. You had to step, you were grounded if there was ice, you were, you know, going through Reykjavik, uh, through uh, Iceland, over the ocean. It was really very dangerous. And so he spent years and years training for this. He was in a kind of precarious situation also because he was Mussolini's star attraction. And yet increasingly, as the, as the flight continued over its course of two weeks, and he was in the news more and more, Mussolini apparently was becoming increasingly jealous of him. And he's started to become angry about the fact that Balbo was now the center of attention and not Mussolini himself. Um, and ultimately, the two of them, it's in the book, but the two of them ended up having a falling out. Interesting. I have to ask you now about the other Italo, Italo Calvino, um, because this book so closely mirrors uh, Invisible Cities. Do you want to tell us about your fascination with him and what makes him so special to you? Yeah, um, he's one of those writers who gets under your skin. So I first read Invisible Cities many years ago, and there are lines in that book that just keep that stay in you. Um, one of which was a line that I used to open the first part of the book. And the way he even um, spoke about writing his interest in language and precision and his revising and his rewriting really spoke to me and spoke to the way that I teach now also. And so I found that I was, I would never ever have had the nerve to say, well, now I think I'm going to sit down and write a response to Invisible Cities. I wouldn't have done that. But I realized it, it I'm often writing for a while before I realize what I, what it is I'm doing. And I had subsequently shared the book with a number of reading groups that I had been running. And so I had been quoting from it and sharing the book and inviting readers to share what are your favorite lines from this book, and everybody has them. And so as I was writing, I it was just me responding to it in an emotional way. And I deliberately, once I knew what the project was, I did not let myself pick up that book and read it again. I had it, and I would sort of almost open it and think, no, I don't want to read it again because I will scare myself off and because I don't want to get too matchy-matchy with the structure. And that, you know, that book, there's a conversation between uh, Kublai Khan and, and Marco Polo. There's, that, that structure is not the same. 
And with this book, like you do change formats, you even have a section which is just photos. Do you want to tell us mm-hmm. about the, just the format of your book and how that first part of it works? Yeah, so it really is a hybrid. There are also floating definitions in that first part of the book. And I had those images and I just, to me, um, I had taken those pictures myself many, many years ago when I first came to New York. And I I did live in New York before I moved to Hoboken. Um, I was young and I was broke, but I bought a Nikon camera and I shot in um, black and white Fuji film because that was the cheapest. And I walked all over the city and just took photographs. And unfortunately, a lot of those photographs were destroyed in, when our basement was flooded too, but some of them survived. And when I was looking at them, I thought, well, the, these photos are now also a story of a city that no longer exists. So I called it the lost city. It's it's um, it's in New York that just isn't there anymore. And so to me, it felt like a story and I, I just decided to include it. Wow. That it really comes off quite well. And it does have that echo of Calvino, but it certainly isn't. It's not meant to be a pastiche of Cal, Calvino or anything like that. I, I couldn't, couldn't, yeah. and I wouldn't want to try that. Yeah. No, it does. It works really, really well. Getting back to Calvino as well, with his other books, what are some of the other books of his that you have enjoyed? Well, I like his tales, like all of his, his like his fairy tales. And, you know, if you want to talk about, um, you didn't mention gateway books. Like for me, um, I love fairy tales. And probably those are the earliest gateway for me. And Calvino has these incredible tales that I sometimes teach to writers um, that, you know, that's it's kind of our earliest experience of storytelling for a lot of us. He once said in an interview that he only wanted to write books that he felt like he didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really admire that. Like it was something like, if I think the idea is just impossible, then I want to do it. Excellent. Uh, and then this other line, which I put in front of me so I could tell you, but it's something that I bring when I teach creative writing, or he said, uh, Everything can change, but not the language that we carry inside us, like a world more exclusive and final than one's mother's womb. Yes, he's pretty extraordinary. And this is in translation, too. I don't read Italian. So mm. I'm reading in translation, but apparently he was also extremely particular with his translators and would fire them if he didn't feel like they were getting to the place he needed it to be. I will ask you about your publisher, Sagging Meniscus, because they seem to be putting out a heap of really good work. What's the process been like working with them? Yeah, it's been great. I've been very happy working with them. This book has an unusual format, and um, they just allowed this book to be what it needed to be. And they, uh, the editor also, Jacob Smellian, made some great suggestions that were very helpful where I was, I was tripping on myself a little bit over the structure and he helped me iron that out. But I've been just very happy to have found a home for a book that is pretty far from center and they've been great. We mentioned some of them just before, but what were some of the, your other gateway books? Okay. So besides the fairy tale, so then I, um, you know, my mother's wouldn't, or, she did her errands on Saturday, so she would just drop me at the public library 
and go off, which I don't think you can do that anymore. You probably get arrested in the U.S. for doing that. So I would just wander around the library as a child. and um, But then for me, um, I almost need to say it because it sounds very highfalutin, but when I was 13, I picked up War and Peace for the first time. And I actually did not really know what the book was. I didn't even know it was by Leo Tolstoy because the cover was damaged and I wasn't sure what the author's name was, but it was the biggest book. And that's what I wanted. It was just big. And um, I was 13 at the time, and Natasha is 13 when War and Peace starts. And it was the most astonishing experience of reading. And for me, it was that, you know, I talk about what I want most as a reader is a ticket to someplace new. And that is, that was a ticket to someplace new. And it's, you know, for me, that ticket can be historical, it can be cultural, it can be language, it can be a way of looking at something that you see every single day, but have never considered it that way. Um, and that's a book that I've, you know, I've read it four times. I think I'd like to go back and read it again. But every time I read it, I think I, I just, I don't even know how somebody could write this. I don't know how he did that. I can't even imagine. So um, that was definitely for me a big thing. And then, um, you know, when I started reading women writers who were still pretty scarce when I was in school, um, but there was Grace Payne. Ailey, enormous changes at the last minute. And there was Tilly Olson, I stand here ironing. And um, there was everything by Flannery O'Connor. Um, those women's stories were really important to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were literary journals that were important to me, in particular, um, the North American Review, which was run for many years by an editor named Robley Wilson, who was an incredible editor and um, was the first editor for a lot of writers who went on to become well-known. Um, and then uh, Gordon Lish's magazine, The Quarterly, um, which was just, uh, you know, a whole new way of looking at writing. And I would read those same stories over and over and over again to just try to understand how they did it. I would read them out loud. Amazing. Okay. What books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to in 2023? Recently. So recently, um, I have been trying to read more books in translation. One of the most amazing books I read is The Lighted Burrow, which it came up from Sublunary Editions and it's Max, B-L-A-C-H-E-R, which I'll pronounce wrong. I don't know whether it's Bletcher or Blacker, but um, just blew my mind. Um, that and the Radetzky March by Joseph Roth. And I have a writer friend in Paris, and I mentioned these books, and she said, oh, yeah, of course. Like, you know, she was too nice to say, like, everybody on earth except for you stupid Americans has heard of these books. Um, I finally read Moby Dick during the pandemic. I'm really proud of myself. Mm. <laughs> I sat down and read it. Um Right now, I'm reading The Jazz Palace by Mary Morris because it's another historical Chicago, and I just love it. And I am reading a forthcoming book from Sagging Meniscus. That's um, The Kirschbaum Lectures by Seth Rogoff. So I get an early look at it. It's terrific. Yes, I think Seth might be on this show later this year because I think his book's out in May. Yeah, yeah, I think so. 
Excellent. Very good. Yes, I've heard it's amazing. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Dawn Raffle. This episode is brought to you by the Doomsday Clock Hotline. At the third beep, it will be 90 seconds to Doomsday. Oh shit, I think I fucked that one up. Never mind, carry on. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Dawn's Desert Island Books. desert island book so I'm going to go back to War and Peace because I want to read it again and if I were on a desert island I'd like to not have my cell phone and um, so I'd read it again um, maybe Metamorphosis but not Kafka, Ovid that might be another um, another one that I've, I have read this book so many times and I cannot read it without crying even though I know everything that's going to happen and that's A River Runs Through It by Norman McLean it's just a beautiful book. Yeah, those are a bunch of them. Well, I will let you go. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. But before I do, can you tell people where they can get in touch with you and if they want some developmental editing, uh, where they can find you? Yes. So all you need to do is Google my name, Dawn Raffle, which will take you to my website, dawnraffle.com. Um, I have a very good name for the age of Google. Um, little did my parents know that if you have my name, there is nowhere to hide. So you will find me very quickly if you go there. Excellent. And where can we go and buy uh, Balances of Sky? So bookshop.org, I think probably has the best price now, but you know, all the regular places, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, I guess you can go to a bookstore and they'll order it for you. So yeah, pretty much everywhere. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you. Congratulations on the book and hope we can talk again soon. Thank you. I really appreciate the interview. Thanks once again to Dawn Raffle. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to leave us a voice message over at anchor.fm forward slash beyondzero. You can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode very soon.